The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Hello, Tim. Fine, thank you. Good. We are uh, actually doing very well. We just had a visit from a couple of the priests from uh, the congregation of St. Pius V who came to help us give a day of recollection to our students at Immaculate Conception Academy. And we're always happy to have them. Yeah. And uh, a seminarian came with them, so uh, they gave some spiritual conferences to our students, and uh, I think very, very well received. Heard confessions, and uh, I think it was encouraging to the people to see the young priests come. And uh, so we have that happen periodically. <coughs> and uh, of course, we're looking forward to a number of blessed events, too. We have the retreats coming up in June for the men and the women. And some of our listeners out there in What Catholics Believe Land might be interested in yeah. making those retreats this year. Um, the men, women's retreat <clears throat> begins on June 13th, and the men's retreat begins on June 20th, <clears throat> and they last through the weekend. And uh, we can accommodate about uh, 24 people at each retreat. Father Grimm will I team up to give the conferences. So uh, I'd encourage people to look into making the retreat. If they want to contact us at What Catholics Believe, we can make that happen. And also, I would like to take uh, a moment also, since you asked how I'm doing, um, to tell you I'm grateful. I'm grateful also because there are people who have been sending support, financial support, to What Catholics Believe, and it's needed, appreciated, very helpful. Uh, so I, I thank you for hearing our, our uh request for, for help there and, and responding so generously. and um, So I just ask you, please, continue that act of generosity. Definitely. That uh, keeps us going here. Thank you, Father. Uh, okay, Father, let's dive into our email inbox here. First question from a viewer who says, I am part of the Chaldean Catholic Church. We have our own traditions that we are allowed to keep. This is important because our Mass is much more traditional like the one you partake in. And, as a bonus, we are also in union with the Holy See. I see this as a win-win for us Chaldean Catholics and a much more safe voyage to save our souls because we haven't disrupted our Masses with modernism and are still attached to the branch that gives life, which is the Catholic Church. What is your opinion on something like this? Well, um... First of all, there is a Chaldean Catholic Church. That might uh, seem strange by commenting uh, that since the uh, gentleman or lady, I'm not sure which, wrote about it, but it, it might come as a surprise to a number of our listeners that there is a Chaldean Catholic Church. But uh, we have to remember that the, the church, uh, the Catholic Church, came missionary-wise to our country. And... Um, <clears throat> The uh, Chaldeans and the, the part of the world, of course, the church spread very early on through the agency of the apostles themselves. 
going back to the very, very earliest times after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord, the apostles actually took the faith initially to that part of the world, right? And uh, so I'm, I'm delighted to hear from this uh, person, the man or a woman, do you? I'm not sure. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but uh, as I say, the reason I mention this is that there is, in fact, uh, certainly a Chaldean Catholic Church. And I must say also that often those who uh, belong to these rites and uh, these ancient, um, um, you know, uh, churches within the church, I should say, I guess, um, that they um, they often suffer. They often suffer at the hand of uh, Muslim conquerors over their lands, and they, they often have to, like the Copts, C-O-P-T-S, the Copts in Egypt and so on, they're very much oppressed uh, by their Muslim overlords or captors. So uh, often these good folks have, have suffered a great deal. Now, let me ask you this, this question. Does this individual give you any indication of whether he is uh, attached to the Chaldean Catholic Church here in the United States of America, or is he actually in uh, the Near East, or where is he? I don't think there's any any mention of the Middle East. (laughs) He doesn't say say where he's from, where he lives. Okay, because uh, there are Chaldean Catholics here in America, too. And uh, it doesn't surprise me, in fact, it would surprise me to find out otherwise, uh, it doesn't surprise me that they've held on to the original, the, the, the ancient liturgy. The modernists did not target the Chaldean Catholics and uh, the Coptic um, rite of the church. <clears throat> the modernists did not target these things, and I think they did not target these things so much as they targeted the traditional uh, Roman rite of Mass. They targeted specifically the traditional Roman rite of Mass, less so the other rites, because <clears throat> their target was really the papacy. And they wanted to uh, destroy that base of the papacy uh, by introducing their modernism in this way. So um, it, it, this gentleman uh, or lady, I will just continue saying this gentleman until I know okay. otherwise, <laughs> um, is pointing out that, yes, the Roman rite has been targeted and essentially destroyed within the Novus Ordo. <clears throat> Even though they claim to still keep the Roman canon um, in their fourth Eucharist, as their fourth Eucharistic prayer, they claim this. Um, but uh, nonetheless, really, the, the Roman rite as such has been effectively destroyed in the Novus Ordo and replaced. Um, so that we who want to carry on the traditional Roman rite in its integrity with the entire traditional Roman Catholic religion are forced to take a position which is anathema in in Rome right now. Oh, I mean, yes, they have the so-called indult mass, and then they went to the semi-pontificatus mass and various other... Uh, extraordinary form masses, as they like to call them. But you cannot practice the entirety of the traditional Catholic religion within the Novus Ordo. You cannot practice the entirety of the traditional Catholic uh, Roman rite and the entire way of life 
within the Novus Ordo, okay? So if this gentleman has found uh, or has actually been raised from, from birth in the Chaldean rite, which is a true traditional Catholic rite, and he can practice that, then I would say this, if you can do that, that is, that is very fine, and I'm very glad you can do that. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that the modernists would love to destroy that too if they saw it serve their purpose, that they would do this. But I would ask him this, I would say, please, if the modernists ever too start to destroy your traditional Chaldean rite of mass and destroy your traditional Catholic way of life in the Chaldean church, the Chaldean Catholic Church, then I would hope you would do exactly what we're doing and say, no, we will not allow you to do that. And you would continue practicing your traditional, your traditions as Catholics uh, in the Chaldean rite and the Chaldean way of Catholic life, uh, one of the Eastern rites. Um, we find it necessary. We find we have no alternative. Um, you may find at some point that you also have no alternative but to hold on to your faith and the practice of your faith by refusing to let the modernists destroy it. And I hope when that, if that does come that you can uh, have the faith and the strength to say, no, we will not surrender our faith to serve the modernists. Mm -hmm. Father, they, they give a bit of a disclaimer here and, uh, and essentially say that uh, they have suspicions regarding your position although he, he says here I'm um, I'm not sure that I fully understand your position yet but they, they've been watching the videos our videos here on the channel and um, he says do you believe it is possible for you to be condemned because you did not have faith in the church of Jesus after all Jesus said that the gates of Hades would not prevail the church fathers have said that it means there will always be a visible Pope when it comes to traditional Catholics, without saying it, they seem to have implied the gates of Hades have prevailed against the Church. Can you please clarify how you don't contradict Jesus and the interpretation of the Church Fathers? And can you please explain if you feel the possibility of losing your soul for not being under the Holy See, even if you have good intentions, which I'm sure you do? Uh, well, uh, I, I just keep wanting to, to refer to this person by a name or something, but that's all right, I don't have to. <laughs> Um, I would just say this, the Church Fathers never said there will always be a living Pope. They couldn't say that because Popes die, and there is time, it takes time to choose another Pope. And we know that there will come a time when there will be a last Pope, when there will be no more Popes, okay? So uh, it is not possible for the Fathers to say there will always be a living Pope. In fact, Church history shows that that is simply not true. Um, uh, we also know that the papacy has been targeted by the enemies of the church, the Freemasons, who have determined that, that the Italian Freemasons have determined that their great prize is to take control of the papacy with a man who thinks like a good Freemason. And we have one now, Francis Bergoglio. Uh, and he is definitely taking the church in the wrong direction. I tend to think that this person would agree that Francis... Is a, is a great threat to the Catholic Church. And maybe, maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't know what Francis has been doing or saying uh, continually. Uh, I don't know. 
The fact is, though, I am not afraid of losing my soul for being a traditional Catholic, no. Uh, in fact, because I'm absolutely convinced that to follow Francis would be a rejection of the magisterium of the Catholic Church. To follow Francis and what he's saying would be a rejection of the Church as established by Christ. Uh, that Francis has cast the church into uh, confusion, as Philip Lawler says, intentionally, right. to undermine the faith and the souls of millions of people. And I believe there are millions of people who actually are following Francis right now, who will lose their, lose their souls because they are following him, because they are doing what he is instructing them to do, or even implying that they should do, following his lead. And so I, I do believe that remaining faithful to the churches established by Christ, which is the true Roman Catholic Church, I believe that uh, that requires me to reject modernism. And I believe modernism has, in fact, uh, taken over the Vatican. Since John the Twenty-Third, Paul the Sixth, and so on. Um, no, I believe I would lose my soul if I followed the modernists. Yeah. And I believe that it is being faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ, and I am being faithful to the Catholic Church by holding on to Catholic traditions. As St. Paul says, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'd recommend our friend read that, and I recommend everyone read that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, St. Paul talks about the time of the coming of the Antichrist, when he says there will be a great apostasy, a great falling away from the faith. And he says at that time, the, the only right thing to do is to hold fast to the traditions that we have received, either by epistle, by writing, or by my mouth, by tradition. And that's what we're doing, right? And um, he, he says that uh, it is a matter of love for the truth that will may enable us to do that. That's all we're doing. One does not lose his soul by doing that. And Father, I come back to this point a lot. You know, this individual and, and many others, they seem to imply that your position is uh, one of a, of a rebel or something of you're denying the uh, the papacy and and going against Rome and you're some kind of rebel or revolutionary and, and well, Francis is the revolutionary in reality, Francis it's, is the rebel it's exactly the, the modernists are the rebels it's exactly the opposite traditional Catholics are simply doing that being traditional mm -hmm. holding on to, to tradition we haven't mm -hmm. changed we're simply doing what the church has always done mm -hmm. and uh, it's, it's the exact opposite of, of being rebellious or, or revolutionary mm -hmm. uh, okay well Father let's move on right, to, to the next email we, we received uh, several emails actually concerning the three days of darkness uh, prophecy and how Padre Pio believed in this and some of our viewers would like to know your thoughts. Is this something that should be taken seriously and if so how should one prepare? Well you know Tom I guess it depends on which of the three days of darkness you're talking about because in talking or, or listening to various people about three days of darkness I get so many different stories about it. Right. I'm told that Padre Pio talked about it and endorsed the idea. I haven't actually seen anything concrete in writing uh, that I can identify as really coming from Padre Pio. I have people saying that Padre Pio spoke of it, and, but I haven't really seen any c compelling evidence that he did. So I'd like to see if there was. If Padre Pio, in fact, did personally speak about it uh, credibly, then I, I would give it much more credence but, you know, there are people who, who really take it to, they make almost a caricature out of the idea of the three days of darkness. 
you know, some people are saying, well, you have to have blessed candles. Uh, they're, they're the only things that will give light, blessed candles during the three days of darkness. And then they say, but, oh, what you need, not only blessed candles, you need blessed matches, matches to light the blessed candles. Blessed and then you need blessed oxygen <laughs> to burn the, the blessed candles, etc., etc., etc. And, you know, it gets to the point where you realize somewhere along the line, somebody's going off the rails on this. And then you read that, uh, you know, even if your loved one is out, trapped outside the door, you cannot let them in during the three days of darkness because then the darkness will invade your home and you will perish if you open the door and even let them in as an act of charity. Um, I find that to be rather peculiar. I even uh, <clears throat> heard of a, a man who decided to stay home from work because he thought planet Nibiru was coming and going to plunge our planet into the three days of darkness. So he decided to stay home from work, but his letting, he let his wife and child go, go off to school and then told her now, you know, if the, when the three days of darkness said, don't come knocking on this door because I'm not going to let you in. Now, I, I hope he was kidding, but I don't know that he was kidding. But this is the kind of things that you're hearing about these three days of darkness. And I think if that's the case, then certainly in some lives, the three days of, days of darkness are already here. <laughs> you know, it's already hit them. Um, so um, I do believe that God will provide for those who are faithful to him through the three days of darkness. And um, I don't know that we need to uh, have a stash uh, set aside for that. As you, as you can tell, I'm, I'm a little skeptical about this, just perhaps just because of the way this whole idea has been presented to me by the various faithful I've, I've encountered. You know? mm -hmm. So uh, if there is something really, truly behind this in Catholic prophecy that is really reliable and endorsed by the Church as credible and worthy of belief, I'd like to know. But certainly what I'm getting reported from the faithful and the things they're handing me to read uh, don't sound very Catholic to me. Okay. Well, Father, there's another email here that, that goes right along with that theme. This one's concerning the mark of the beast. Mm. And they say that uh, people say the mark of the beast, which is to be put on the heads and hands of humans, will be a microchip that will allow us to continue doing commerce. If a person were to willfully accept the microchip on his hand or forehead without adoring any beast and his image, would he be necessarily damned for having willfully accepted the microchip? If the microchip is to be to be implanted, were to be literally forced upon a person against his will, would that unfortunate person necessarily be doomed to perdition under the wrath of God if he were not to adore the beast in his image and were to steadfastly resist the implantation until it actually happened. Well, there is certainly a mark of the beast. It's in the book of the Apocalypse. Um, that there will be a mark of the beast, and those who accept the, uh, accept the mark um, will be considered to be sort of in the entourage of the beast, and those uh, who don't will not be able to buy or sell. Okay? Um, and so they will be marginalized and you know, basically excommunicated from society. But um, what that mark of the beast is, I don't know. Some say it's the universal product code will be somehow imprinted on the forehead or on the hand. <clears throat> Others say it's the market microchip. Who knows you know, what form it might take 10 years from now or whatever. They're already imprinting microchips in people. Um, and uh, mostly, I think people are accepting them willingly. I don't know if they're implanting them 
forcibly yet, okay? But, you know, the, the book of the Apocalypse seems to indicate that those who accept it will actually, by the very acceptance of it, be admitting something that they can't do if they're faithful to God. Um, now, I don't know that for a fact, but the implication seems, at least to me, that I, by accepting the microchip, one is somehow buying into some kind of a false religion or proclaiming a, a, a religion to even the Antichrist, or allegiance, allegiance to the Antichrist. So perhaps there will be some kind of loyalty oath or something to accept that, um, that one has to voluntarily, deliberately pledge him, himself to uh, the, the world powers that be at the time. Certainly, if someone is forcibly implanted with this thing, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make him guilty of anything because he hasn't willed it to do anything. His will may be totally contrary to this, but physically he's forced to accept it. So he would be innocent of it. In fact, uh, it could be kind of a form of martyrdom if he's resisting it mightily all the way, even as they're doing it to him. And uh, the point is that sin is in the will, and a person has to will something to make it sinful. If he receives this against his will, he's not committing sin by doing it. He would not be condemned for it. Uh, in the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 7, also talks about um, the, the angels being told not to strike the earth or the sea or the trees, not to harm these things, <coughs> until the, uh, the chosen, certain chosen souls are marked with the sign of the Son of Man on their foreheads, right? And uh, and you keep reading in the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 7, and it talks about 144,000 signed of the tribes of Israel. So these are actually descendants of Abraham, Jews, who are marked with the sign of the Son of Man, the Son of the Savior, our Lord. It indicates, really, their baptism. They're receiving on their foreheads, Rather than the mark of the beast, they are actually receiving the mark of our, our Lord, the cross, you know, during the baptism, the mark of the cross is traced there, of course, as you know, and, um, and in, in baptism. So this would indicate the fulfillment of St. Paul's prophecy about the conversion of, of Israel at the end, to, to accept, accept Christ, those who are true Israelites, that is, uh, true descendants of Abraham. Uh, not the, the synagogue of Satan that, that is spoken of in the book of the Apocalypse. They say they are Jews and are not, really. So um, the reason why I'm, I'm mentioning this is that there will actually be two marks. There are two marks mentioned in the Apocalypse. One is the mark of the beast, and the other is the mark of our Lord that will be placed on the foreheads of those who will be faithful to him. And, uh, of course, as we know from the book of the Apocalypse, they will be the, leading the, the resistance to the Antichrist, led by Elias and Henoch, who will be brought back uh, precisely to uh, lead the resistance to the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's move on to another email, Father. Uh, this email is concerning the topic of zeal here and he says uh, where is zeal nowadays even those who defend the true Catholic Church hide close themselves in their territories do not wield weapons do not fight and they show no zeal 
Why do not bishops and cardinals who fight for tradition join together and call for a new council, group together, seek to rescue the true church, shout and promote war against heretics who have taken over our cathedrals, our seminaries, and monasteries? It would not be a schism because a schism takes place within the church, and the one that is there is not a Catholic church. It would be the ransom and restoration of the church that was eclipsed. I want to participate in this war. Evidently. <laughs> Evidently, you're already got, got the uh, sword drawn and brandishing it already. And, uh, I mean, I, I appreciate the zeal. I appreciate the zeal. But you have to have, well, there are two things you have to avoid. You have to avoid a bitter zeal that just wants to get out and uh, and and make war on the enemies because we're mad at them, we hate them, we want to make them go away, okay? That's a bitter zeal. Yeah, but there's also an imprudent zeal. Um, <clears throat> for example, the Crusades, when, when, uh, when Peter the Hermit was, was announcing the Crusade in Europe, he wound up with an enormous group of people who were following him. They weren't warriors, they weren't fighters, they were just ordinary people, and they decided they weren't going to wait. So they, they all marched off toward Constantinople, thousands strong of ordinary people. I'm talking about blacksmiths and farmers and seamstresses and all, and all the rest. And they were going to go, and they were going to fight their way to the Holy Land and uh, go to the Holy Sepulchre. They were the first crusaders. The problem was they weren't really commissioned crusaders by the church in the sense that they weren't officially the crusaders. They just kind of took it into their own hands. They got to Constantinople. The emperor in the east there, who had just gone into schism against the Catholic Church, was wondering, what do I do with all these people who are encamped around my city now? And they're causing trouble. And so he thought, well, you know, they're causing so much trouble here on this side of the Bosphorus. Let's get them all in boats and send them all over to the other side where they can be the Muslims' problems. <laughs> so he actually uh, ferried them all across the Bosphorus Straits into, well, Asia, uh, what is now Turkey, right? And they were, uh, those that weren't massacred were enslaved by the Muslims, okay? They had great zeal, but boy, it was really imprudent. They did a real dumb thing, right? They should have waited for some kind of, you know, guidance from the proper proper sources. Now, admittedly, you know, at the time of St. Bernard, of Clairvaux, and Urban II, and so on, you had the voice of the church speaking. They could have listened to that. They didn't, okay? Now, we might say, well, we don't have Urban II. We don't have Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, so, we can't wait. We just have to go ahead and march off and, and fight our own battles, right? No, no, not really. Um, again, just because uh, we, we may certainly uh, see Francis as the Pope of the Novus Ordo, okay? But the Novus Ordo is modernism, it's not Catholicism. Doesn't make us Pope. We can't get together and start electing our own Pope. If we did, we'd be making a very serious mistake. We have to wait for Almighty God to show clearly, to show the way here. Uh, there are a lot of people today who have decided they're going to be traditional Catholics, but they're going to be traditional Catholics in their own way. And they're going to do things their own way, like the Tuk, following the Tuk bishops. Uh, that is definitely the wrong way to go. Uh, and we've explained that a number, any number of times in the program here. 
there are thousands of Turk bishops out there doing their own thing, creating their own Catholicism. Uh, uh, well, not really, though. I mean, it's their own personal, uh, shall we say, um, species of Catholicism, not of the Catholic Church, certainly. And um, they, they've just gone off, gone off like this, this errant crusade, and they wind up in, in the hands of the enemy. So I would say I admire the zeal of this fellow, but um, his zeal has to be directed by prudence, and what he's suggesting there is not, neither prudent nor even possible. If you got handfuls of traditional Catholics or even all of those who thought of themselves as traditional Catholics together, you would find when it comes down to applying Catholic tradition and practice, they would not all agree. And you'd wind up uh, having like half a dozen different groups splitting off and each electing their own pope if they were going to do what he was saying and fighting their own battles and, and wind up fighting each other. Um, and disagreeing with each other about what it is to actually follow Catholic tradition. For example, for us, following Catholic tradition is saying no to the Turks, because we see the Turks got their start uh, from the violation of Catholic tradition by doing something that the Catholic tradition has always condemned. And we cannot see and will not see that as following Catholic tradition. To say uh, violating um, Catholic tradition in this essential way as a means of saving Catholic tradition, being faithful to Catholic tradition. It doesn't make sense. So there are those who think they're following Catholic tradition by going to the diocesan masses um, uh, you know, of the, um, the 1962 variety that were approved by the Vatican and under the auspices of the Vatican. They think they're traditionalists now, traditional Catholics. But they're, <laughs> they're not really because they can't practice the integrity of the Catholic faith there. But they have to recognize the modernists. They have to somehow compromise with the modernists. That is not traditional Catholicism. It's just not as simple as this gentleman makes it out to be. Would that it were, would that it were, but it isn't. And so I'm afraid in following what he's saying here, um, that very soon, uh, we would imprudently wind up almost taking the part of terrorists, having the appearance of terrorists and going around with swords and knives and, and attacking people. And uh, that's just not, I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that's not what our Lord wants us to do. He wants us to begin by fighting the spiritual battle right now. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the toughest battle. That's the battle against the principalities and powers, the powers of darkness in high places. That's the battle we're trying to fight right now. Um, and that is, that is really where the, the essence of the battle is. That's where it has to be fought. Uh, you know, in, in your reading this, I, I can't help but think of G.K. Chesterton, though. Because Chesterton was one of those, like this man who said, who just wanted to get out with a sword in the field. He wanted to get out with a broadsword and start swinging it away. And he criticized those who spill ink rather than blood. Mm -hmm. And they slayed the soul rather than the body. And, uh, you know, Chesterton was one of those brawlers who wanted to get out there and do, uh, uh, you know, meet the enemy face to face and uh, jowl to jowl, as, as it were. Um, but that's, again, but he didn't. He fought the battle on the level of ideas, the spiritual ideas. He had to restrain his his um, Braveheart, <laughs> William Wallace tendencies, 
to actually be one of those who use the ink to fight the good fight on the battle on the, in the level on the battlefield of the mind and the soul. Mm-hmm. And I'd say that's really. Uh, although there, there definitely is a place for what he's saying here. There is a place in the battlefield to fight the good fight. And I say traditional Catholics have to be ready to do that too. They have to be ready to fight that fight when they're challenged to fight for their homes, to fight for their country. They have to be. But as far as the bishops and the priests and so on, our, our calling is to fight the battle on the battlefield of the soul, mm-hmm. primarily. This, this kind of reminded me of, uh, of St. Peter and the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. When the, uh, oh, well, there you are. There's another. Yeah, you, you know, and, and St. Peter is still ready to, uh, to, to fight with the sword when mm-hmm. he, he, should have been, uh, he should have been fighting his spiritual battles. You can see in the subsequent events how weak he was and how he should have been. You know, John, that's a good point. However, however, there's a said contrary to that. There's another side to it. You know? That's a very good point. <coughs> that in the Garden of Gethsemane, St. Peter drew his sword and took a swipe at the servant of the high priest. We even know his name, Malchus, from the Bible, from the Gospel. And he even sliced his ear off. Uh, Malchus must have... Pl- either St. Peter was a little, you know, confused in the darkness... Or Malchus must have parried the blow, but he, he got his ear all right. And our Lord put his ear back on, healed him, and told Peter to put his sword away. Our Lord said, my father could send me um, uh, 12 legions of angels. That's like 72,000 angels to rescue me. Um, but this is not the time, you know. But there you might be saying, well, here we are as though we're back in the Garden of Gethsemane. And our Lord is saying, don't use your sword here. But maybe not. You know, remember, as our Lord was entering the Garden of Gethsemane, he did tell the apostles, now is the time to get yourself some sword. He did tell them, now is the time to be ready to fight with the sword. And that's when the apostles said, well, we have two swords here, and our Lord said, that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) That was enough for the moment. But so our Lord is certainly not against using the sword for good. You know that, of course. But uh, obviously there's a time, place, and a place for it. And a circumstance for it, and uh, whether or not this is the the right time and the place and the circumstance, well, we have to be careful and make sure we're doing the right thing sure. when it comes to defending with a sword. Okay. Next email, Father, is titled "Saints and Mortal Sin." Were there saints who fell into mortal sin after their conversion? To be clear, I do not mean a Saint Mary Magdalene or a Saint Augustine, saints who were once great sinners, but then after their conversion seem to never fall into mortal mortal sin again. I mean people who, after their conversion to Christ and the Church, may have lapsed grievously, but then received the sacrament of penance and regained the state of sanctifying grace, and who ultimately went on to great heights of sanctity. Did he mention Peter, Saint Peter? Mm-hmm. We were just talking about Saint Peter. Yeah. Um, I mean, look at Saint Peter. His fall was. Terrible, wasn't it? Denying even knowing, cursing and swearing that he never even knew our Lord. Mm-hmm. And now he might argue, well, he hadn't converted yet, really. Right? Well, I don't know. I think you'd have to. Um, you'd have to say uh, that St. Paul showed signs of conversion before and professing that he would lay down his life with our Lord. And he was apparently very sincere. Uh, that, again, was as they were about to enter the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, but, um, but in weakness he fell, and it was a terrible fall, right? So I think starting with St. Peter, we have an example of somebody who probably fits that description. You know? I think what the uh, person is getting at is that once their conversion has happened, 
if they go back to uh, committing mortal sin, it's that much more difficult and unlikely that they will ever find their way back to grace again. Admittedly, uh, because of the, of the graces that they'd received and rejected in order to fall back into mortal sin, yes, it would take an extraordinary grace. I mean, all grace, in a sense, is extraordinary, but uh, uh, it would take uh, a great grace to bring them back, right? To repentance. But, uh, I mean, I, I can't think of uh, a plethora of people who've been through that. Some of our listeners might think of people right away, but they don't come to my mind right away. But certainly there must be some who um, fell in back into sin and then truly repented of it. Um, it seems to me that... Um, and I, I actually can't even think of the name right now, but I, I, I know from reading about some who faced with the prospect of martyrdom, um, weakened mm -hmm. and caved in, and even offered incense to idols, but then repented, sincerely repented, and bravely faced the, the sword, the, the fire, whatever, um, in reparation for their weakness. Well, I guess, I guess sort of like Peter again, you know. So there, there are certainly examples of saints who've done that. You can't say there were none. Uh, they might be relatively rare. I mean, our, our writer there mentioned St. Mary Magdalene. Well, there, I don't think there's any evidence of after her conversion, her ever going back to commit a mortal sin. So I, I don't think she's an example of that, right? Mm -hmm. St. Augustine, I don't think there's an example of after his actual baptism, him going back and falling back into mortal sin. So again, I don't think he would be an example. This man says, I'm not talking about that, or this lady, I'm not talking about them, but I don't think they even fit into that category. Mm -hmm. you know? So, uh, but there are those who weakened and who did succumb to what was objectively mortally, mortal sin uh, in times of persecution who then later came forward and repented and sincerely embraced their martyrdom out of love for our Lord. So uh, I, I, I know it's not impossible that it can be done, mm -hmm. but I, I do say that there are examples. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will try to actually come up with some names and dates and places if possible for it. Sounds good. Okay. Father, what does world without end mean when we pray the doxology? Well, that is a translation of per omnia secula seculorum, which literally means, well, seculum has different meanings, but generally they can translate it through ages and ages, through era and eras, you know, and in these vast spaces of time, you know. Generally, uh, we talk about the, the novus ordo seculorum, or the Novus Ordo Seclorum, as they corrupted it, the new order of the ages, literally, Secula Seculorum, <coughs> the order of the ages. This is what the Novus Ordo, um, this is the, the motto on the, on, the, on the American money, the dollar bill, right? Novus Ordo Seclorum, the new order of the ages. And the new order is exactly what Saint, what, what, Paul VI, not yet, not saint, Paul VI said he was introducing into the church this Novus Ordo. 
And um, when we talk about the, the ages, we're talking about this vast expanse of time. And so when we're talking about eternity, and we're talking about the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost reigning, we're talking about through all ages of ages, through all time, we're talking about an unending reign. And uh, the, the sense of it is to convey the notion of eternity, that there is no end to this um, God forever and ever. Amen is literally what it really means. Mm-hmm. But we translated it as world without end uh, in English. And um, in that sense, we'd have to refer to that as not this world, but the next world. And we talk about the next world, right? We, that's a common expression, the next world, meaning eternity, basically. And uh, it means heaven, essentially, right? And so by that, we are, we are indicating that there's no end to that, that it is eternal. Mm-hmm. Father, could you comment? I, I've heard this, uh, this explanation before that only when we speak of, of this, this next world and when we say eternity and world without end and forever and ever and all of this, Actually, the, uh, th- this is only a, our human natural way of expressing this concept, but it's actually inadequate because mm-hmm. time is a temporal thing. It's, it's a thing of this world. And in the next world, there's, it's actually the, uh, the correct concept is not a world without end. It's forever and ever and ever. The actual mm-hmm. correct concept is that uh, there's no concept of time there. It just yeah. is. It just exists as, as God just... Right, there's no change. Uh, the philosophers of old said time is a measure of change according to before and after. That's what they thought of time. And that's a property of this world. And the property of this world, yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Not a property of the next, okay? Mm-hmm. That the idea of change there is not what it is here, clearly. It doesn't apply. It doesn't apply there. So uh, the, the, the idea of the permanent, eternal, everlasting world with permanent, eternal, everlasting life. That eternal life, insofar as it means it had no beginning, okay? Eternity literally involves no beginning and no end, okay? We all had a beginning. So we're not eternal beings, and we can't have eternal life that's in God because his life never had a beginning. It always was. Um, but we have everlasting life that has no end, okay? And uh, we, we try to convey a notion that our minds cannot grasp of eternity mm-hmm. by simply talking about eons and eons of time that just simply do not end. They never end. There's no end to it. We try to convey that by the expression world without end, amen, referring to the next world. This is no ending. It's everlasting, right? And uh, forever and ever, and um, uh, you know all the other expressions used in English, but we're still basically thinking in terms of time, but endless time. So it doesn't quite make it to the level of eternity, (laughs) because our minds cannot grasp this. We're not eternal beings. God alone is eternal. You might say perhaps even the angels cannot grasp the, the. the measure of eternity, because they also had a beginning, as we have. Mm-hmm. And Father, when when considering that, how uh, how terrifying is the thought of hell? When you think of that, it's not actually there's there's no measure of time that you can you can't say I've been here for this many 
years, I have this many years left or something like that. It's just that there's literally no concept of time. You're just mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Right. And uh, I thought that everything was, is just the beginning. Mm -hmm. I thought that was, <laughs> there's there's no end. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite awful. And yet hell, as awful as it is, is not literally as awful as heaven is mm -hmm. wonderful. Because yeah. we can imagine hell. We can't imagine heaven. It's too wonderful. You know? <laughs> and so we ought to think about that too. Okay. <laughs> because that's really the goal. Sounds good. Uh, okay, Father, what does the church teach about the freezing of embryos for several years? And also, how are Catholics expected to respond to the families when the children are born? From frozen embryos. Well, we're not supposed to have embryos to freeze, and we're not supposed to fertilize. Um, uh, so, creating essentially creating a human life in a dish. But how should Catholics respond and, to that? Okay, well, yeah, the course question was what do we think about frozen embryos? Mm -hmm. Well, we shouldn't have them, they shouldn't be making them. And. Uh, to freeze them, put them in kind of suspended animation for future use with the idea we're going to discard them ultimately that we don't use. This is monstrous. This is absolutely monstrous. You take all of the monsters that we've been able to, to, to conjure up in our own minds, and the Frankenstein, Wolfman, uh, uh, you know, uh, Godzilla, etc., 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 they don't even compare with the monsters behind this, this huge crime. And, uh, I mean, we talk about the millions of people who are held in concentration camps and put to death and so on. We've got millions and millions of souls in, involved here. I mean, I, I understand that some years ago in Britain alone, they, they were numbering six, they were estimating 600,000 frozen embryos waiting for implantation. And the question is, what do we do? And there are people who wanted to adopt them. And uh, what a problem we've created for ourselves. They were actually wondering, what do we do with them? Uh, Cardinal Basil Hume, one of the modernist leaders in England, said, well, just thaw them out and let them destroy them. That was his answer. Um, and as I recall, <laughs> was his answer. I remember being horrified at that. But... Um, here, here's the, uh, the point uh, that we shouldn't be doing this in the first place. Uh, so leave it at that. And uh, as far as what do we do if they actually implant one of these and it actually does prosper and grow into a human being, what should our attitude be toward the parents? Pity, for one. Pity, and for the child, uh, because it would be a human child conceived by human, human beings, right? Um, and pity for them having been conceived, I guess, in a, in a test tube, essentially, right? Um, but, uh, you know, we, we certainly would, would want their salvation, their repentance, if they're guilty of this, this atrocity. We would want them to repent of it. Not the child, of course. The child's the victim of this. <laughs> but if we want the parents to repent of this, uh, confess it, and be absolved, um, return to the state of grace and be assured never to ever do such a thing again and hopefully make reparation by convincing others not to do this. Um, <clears throat> we'd have to be aware of the fact that if, if a child was conceived this way and it came into the world, that there were, together with that child, that child wasn't alone. That child wasn't alone. That there were others, perhaps 
a dozen or more conceived there with that child that are either still somewhere in somebody's freezer somewhere or destroyed for the sake of bringing that child into existence, right? And this is, again, a monstrous thing. So we have to be praying for this child, certainly also, um, when the child realizes how he or she came into the world, what was done to produce this, this life, we have to hope and pray that this child will eventually acknowledge its creator and love its creator, realize that it is very grateful to God for giving life. And I guess that's the bottom line for me. I mean, you might ask the same question, by the way, about a child conceived out of wedlock. You might ask a child conceived about a child conceived in any, any way, however immoral it may be. Well, how do we regard that life? We are always grateful to God for giving life. Always. Um, always. What we lament is the conditions that we made, that that life came to be, that God gave that life even under the most atrocious conditions that we have created. That's what we have to lament. So we all love that child as we would love any child, maybe even more so, <laughs> depending on the relations we have there with them, the relationship we have with the child. But we can still lament very much the, the circumstances that we created not the life that God created, but the circumstances that we made for God to uh, create that life. Mm -hmm. That's where we need to repent and change our ways. Father, I can't help but, but think that um, you know when, when one considers all of these uh, all of these j just unnatural things that we've done, you know, this um, these test tube babies and in vitro fertilization and all and all of this, and how um, contradictory this is. To uh, we have abortion now too, and I um, just a, a side note. I was recently in a, uh, a college ethics class full of uh, probably thirty some students, and they were discussing the topic of abortion, and they came to a partial partial birth abortion, and the instructor actually had an illustration on the screen describing the procedure and uh, just how terribly awful it is, and not a single one of these thirty some students disagreed with the procedure. Every single one of them was giving their own justifications, trying to uh, trying to defend it and say why this should be legal, why this should be a right that we should have. And it's just uh, incredible. I, I think if one just steps back for a moment and just considers all these just terribly monstrous things that, that, we, have, that we have done. Were they denying the humanity of the unborn child? Or did they even talk oh, no. about it? Oh, no. They actually admitted the humanity of the unborn child. Yeah. But they actually went so far as to say, it's okay to kill it yep. under certain circumstances. Yeah. Well, these really are monsters. Yeah. Then To say, yes, I can justify killing. What makes them any better than Mengele, uh, Hitler's <clears throat> experimental doctor who tortured and, uh, and killed so many for experimental purposes, for so-called scientific research, I yeah. guess you would call it. Yeah. <clears throat> what makes them any better than any other other a great outrageous uh, mass murderers of history? Um, but you know, they've been raised in the colleges with existentialism. Uh, they create their own little worlds about themselves, and everything is 
true or false, right or wrong, depending on how it, it strikes them and whether it makes them happy or not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can see in their little worlds, each his own little world, that <clears throat> if that child were uh, a problem in my life, <clears throat> that I should have the right to kill it. <clears throat> and I, I, one of the, the number one uh, justifications that was given is it's the mother's right, it's her body and all okay. this. And I, I, uh, I remember just, just uh, a couple of weeks ago being... Uh, in a, uh, a stranger's house for some work-related purposes, and on um, one of the child's doors on their bedroom door, going out that they saw every day, it was a big sign that said, "The most important thing in life is me." Okay. And I think that attitude right there—that uh-huh. that—that just sums it up. There is the modern the world. world. <laughs> yeah. Who do you think inspired that? That sign was my first thought. Who do you think inspired oh, that? Oh yeah. Well, actually, uh, that Lucifer. Yeah. Lucifer has that as his bumper sticker and his, <laughs> and his uh, you know, serpent mobile <laughs> is me. Well, that isn't the truth. No. I see we have a number of pages left there, Tom, mm-hmm. and I wish we had time to cover them all tonight, but yeah. obviously we can't. Last time I, I said, well, let's just go to the end of the stack. We, we went on for an hour and a half almost. So I'm a little reluctant to say that tonight. So sure. Okay. Maybe we'll... <clears throat> have to put those at the top of the stack we for next time. I think we made good good progress tonight. We got through a lot, so yeah, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we thank the viewers for their patience. Uh, we can't get through everything. Mm-hmm. How many how many more questions do we have? Now, last time you said a hundred. I'm not sure. We probably received twenty twenty some new emails this week. So oh, just with each program, we've mm-hmm. got a number. Of, oh, yeah. so. can't answer them as fast as we get them. Nope. Nope. Okay. Well. Um, oh, well, we'll just have to ask for patience. Or, yeah, yeah, we'll get there. What else to do? Thank you. <laughs> we'll get there. Thanks for being here tonight, Father. I appreciate yeah. your time. We'll have to talk faster. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll thank you. No thank problem. you. Thanks for doing the show. Yep. Appreciate it. No problem. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.